Money. What's your name again? Chrissy. Where are we going? Swimming. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Heaven and earth. Are the shades of Pemberley to be thus polluted? Get away from her, you bitch! No, Alderaan is peaceful. We have no weapons. You can't. You look possibly... at another target, a military target. Then name the system. Houston, we have a problem. Jesus, why am I doing this? Because I asked you. No, no, no. Because you like me. Is that sarcasm? No, that's not sarcasm. I don't use sarcasm. It's irritation. Poison. Turn it down, will you? Wax on, right hand. Wax off, left hand. Wax on, wax off. Breathe in through nose, out the mouth. These are a few of my favorite things. Hello, and welcome to the Movie Robcast. I'm your your host <laughs> Rob Wallace and as always I'm joined by my co-host my dear dear friend Mr Rob Daniel hello it is wonderful to be here and yes this is a bit of a weird episode isn't it yeah it's one of those that kind of puts things into perspective sorry that sounds that sounds quite serious but um no it's um this is our 100th episode it is i thought you were then going to say it puts things into perspective the way that things were put into perspective when Spinal Tap went to Elvis's grave. And one of them says, still puts things into perspective though, doesn't it? Yeah. Bit too much fucking perspective. <laughs> I like how you just went meta with my comment on perspective there. I, I, I've seen Spinal Tap and I thought that. So I was like, did one of them go, yeah, it was like when so-and-so went to so-and-so's grave and they said, you know what, it's like when so-and-so went to so-and-so's grave. I thought I thought it was like, God, we're, we're 100 episodes in and we finally got caught in, in an inescapable recursion. Well, the episode's only just started, Rob. So There's <laughs> a strong chance we are going to do that. Talking about inescapable recursion, one of our topics of discussion today will be uh, Bill and Ted Face the Music. It will. And another one will be just, I think, a more general chat about film. Yeah, indeed, I think. So 100 episodes, which is quite something. I'm not sure if it's an amazing thing or if it's a worrying thing that we've found... It could be both. It could be both, yes. It could be a worryingly amazing thing that we've found 100 different things to talk about with film. I was about to say, they're always making more of them, but at the minute, not so much. I mean, maybe, you know, I don't know... Hopefully, many years down the line, you know, fifty years down the line, <laughs> we'll uh, we'll both go. Oh, we've COVID really killed it. You know, really killed the film industry. We've done all film. Do you know what? That would be good for um, a couple of reasons. One, because that means that I will live to be ninety-five, so that would be good. And two, the older I get, the more I'm aware that I'm not going to be able to watch all the films made, even if I have to stop them now. There are going to be films oh, no, made years ago. There's, there's no working electronic equipment. We've both just fully lost it by this point. Oh, okay. So we're just talking in an old folks' home. I mean, yeah, old folks' home. That's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> yes, we'll be we'll be cleaning out the toilets in a Thunderdome or something, even though we're really old. My first um, point of reference was going to be Mad Max. So yeah, that's uh... <laughs> yes. It's all going to be Mad Max, isn't it? 
But yes, it's one of those that uh, obviously was going to get meta really, really quickly. But uh, yeah, so 100 episodes and it's... Wow, it's actually really quite amazing, I think. And I'm quite proud of what we've accomplished over 100 episodes. It's gone by quickly. So yeah, I say that in a really nice way. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that you know, a number of years ago now, you sort of said, hey, do you fancy doing a podcast? Just a thing, we'll give it a go, see how it works out. Our very first episode, The Winter of the Western. I remember that very keenly. And yeah, kind of here we are. I mean, you do the lion's share of the work. Which is weird, because it's not the lion that does the lion's share of the work, it's the lioness, and yet the lion gets the lion's share. So, actually, you know what, I'm definitely the lioness in this situation. No, I'm definitely the lion in this situation, you're the lioness, because, like, you do the majority of the work in terms of bringing down the prey, which is an episode of this podcast, and yet I get, you know, at least an equal share. It it wouldn't be the podcast without you, Rob, as well. It's like Simon and Garfunkel. Yes. One of them... (laughs) Well, this is lit. far less flattering than you think it is. <laughs> yeah, it is, isn't it? Because one of them's really, really talented. The other one's just a hanger-on who can sing a bit. <laughs> I mean, no, no, but, I would say... but one of us was in Catch-22, so maybe... Bad timing as well. And Boxing Helena. So yeah. there you go. Now, I would, I actually stand by that because Paul Simon, his solo stuff is good. I've, but... seen, I've seen him in concert. Yes, I haven't. That's right, yeah. But it's not as good as Simon and Garfunkel. I disagree. <laughs> Okay, there's another example where it's it's not bears from the Happy Mondays. It just brings a particular vibe to the band. Um, but you just say that I do the podcast equivalent of fucking jumping up and down on the spot. Yeah, but you but you bring a vibe. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to stick with Simon and Garfunkel, which I think is I am choosing to believe is actually a huge compliment, even though you think that, and I'm sure a lot of other people think, no, he's he's got that wrong. It's actually really really hurtful what he's just said. Well, about. you know, Art Garfunkel going to shoot Catch Twenty Two inspired Paul Simon to write The Only Living Boy in New York. Oh, so, you know, there's, you know, there's, I'll take what I can from this. Um, and, you know, you know, you know, this ends up with them hating and hating each other and refusing to perform you know, <laughs> together. Like, that's, that's how this ends, right? That was the other thing that I was thinking. I was thinking, oh, actually, the one thing now that I'm on the Simon and Garfunkel train and it's left the station and I realised that maybe it wasn't fit for travel, it ends badly, doesn't it? It ends with them both loathing each other, yes, and they're refusing end, to be in end, the same city it, as each it other. It ends with me seeing Paul Simon in concert and it being great. Probably one of the best live performances I've ever seen. And him performing Bridge Over Troubled Water and basically being like, yeah, I'm taking this back from somebody who... <laughs> stole it from me. Who stole it from me. It's like, oh, shit. When I was a kid... Uh, sorry, <laughs> sorry, on the subject of nostalgia, um, when I was a kid, I saw them in concert together. Wow. I, I didn't know they were, no, were yeah. performing. That must have been during um, the 90s. Um, uh, late 90s? Uh, Mid-late 90s, maybe. Yeah, mid-late 90s. I saw them at the Colosseum in Rome. The Colosseum as in, yeah. you know, the big, you know, gladiator. Yes. Was that the divorce tour they were both on, where they had massive I alimony checks I to pay or something? I don't know, actually. Um, I know that it was it was a publicly funded, as in the governor paid for it. It was a free concert. Me wow. and my mum and dad and sister were just wandering past and were like, the big screen outside the club. Holy shit, it's Simon and Garfunkel. I wish I'd been a bit older because, you know, I was kind of, I was, you know, I knew Mrs. I was old enough to kind of know Mrs. Robinson, know the really, but I wish I'd, you know, kind of been kind of able to appreciate the fact that I'm seeing a Simon and Garfunkel perform together and, Wow, I didn't. I did not know they were performing in the late nineties. Yeah, that was a tour in which they did ten sets of two hours each, so you know, twenty hours, and they were together for twenty hours and twenty minutes, <laughs> separate hotel rooms, separate hotels. Anyway, let's buck the trend of Simon and Garfunkel on our movie broadcast. 
And what do you mean, end it now? End it now. Because <laughs> zombie's not working. Yeah. And let's not have a massive falling out and, uh, and never speak to each other again until we have to do a divorce tour because we're both getting sued by our ex-wives or something. And um, Oh, you mean we're going to Lennon, Lennon and McCarthy it? Yes, we're going to, uh, what? So I'm going to get <laughs> what? shot. One of us is going to die, I think. Well, Twitch then say, oh, so you're going to get shot, Rob. So you're John Lennon. And I'm fucking Paul McCartney. I'm the one that does the frog song. <laughs> The worst thing to happen to music since John Lennon getting shot. Fucking hell. He did Live and Let Die. He did do that, but that was before John Lennon got shot. He did the Frog Song afterwards. And he did that film, Give My Regards to Broadway, which was shit. Uh, anyway, yeah, so it will be interesting to find out which one of us is the Lennon and which one of us is McCartney. I think it's a question that can only be answered with a gunshot. So we will have to see when that gunshot arrives. I don't, Probably I don't, when I... we get told off for not cleaning out the Thunderdome totally. <laughs> see, I don't know how well Russian Roulette will translate to podcasts, but <laughs> yeah, that's right. We... I need to know. <laughs> no, it wasn't that one. I'm still McCartney. Um, <laughs> just want to make sure that this gold is recording. <laughs> So, okay then, so, before this, actually, before we get on to Bill and Ted, who are, of course, another wonderful musical duo, so actually that did all fit in, that was planned, honestly, folks, okay, now, everything can tie in if you give it enough time. Throughout this episode, so we went to past guests and asked them if they just wanted to send us through some movie chat that they could record and we would then put into this episode. And I thought that they would send through a minute of saying, yeah, go and see this film, it's good, or something like that. What they sent through was so much better than what I asked for, and it's absolutely wonderful. And you are going to hear from them during this episode, and we will intro them before they start to speak. So, I'll yes, I, I mean, I haven't heard any of this yet, but by the sounds of it, we got some really nice, heartfelt, sincere... We did. It was... All it's... of them are lovely. It's... um I say all of them. So Tess, who you would have heard on the Vast of Night and the Whiplash episode, she's going to send hers through tomorrow. So that's a bit of a name and shame there. But I have no doubt that Tess is going to send through something absolutely lovely as well. But the ones that I've I mean, heard I so mean, far... best movie experience for Tess was clearly seeing Jaws with us. Yes, indeed. Yeah. If she says that her best movie experience is anything other than seeing Jaws with us, then... That is basically like Mark Chapman has appeared in front of me with a gun and has asked me to sign his album. (laughs) But we'll see what her favourite movie experience is. We will put those in throughout the episode and they're really nice. And it's one of those things where it's like, oh, right, we're going to have to raise our game a bit because these are really good. And yeah, you'll be hearing that later. We can just provide connective tissue. You know, it's, yeah, fine. Do, yeah. it's fine. It's fine. Those are the organs. Those, those are what power is powering this, you know, this thing. We're just the connective tissue. It's fine. We just need to be adequate. Do you know what? That's great. We just need to be the MC of the evening and they're the stand-ups. That's absolutely yeah, fine. See, you know. Easiest job. So before we get on to our movie reminisces, should we talk about Bill and Ted Face the Music? Yes. When your wives suggested couples therapy, do you think that this is what they had in mind? Definitely. I mean, we're a couple of couples, right? Bill, Ted, enough of the delusions. You didn't time travel. And you didn't go to heaven and hell. Here's a real idea for you. Be role models to your daughters. Get real jobs. Bill, we've spent our whole life trying to unite the world. And I'm tired, dude. Ted, we have a destiny to fulfill. Greetings, my excellent friends. We have a problem. Step forward. 
A song created by Preston Logan. Performed tonight will save reality as we know it. Oh, dude, we better write that song now. Or why can't we just go to the future when we have written it? And take it from ourselves. Except, won't that be stealing? Cheers! <laughs> How is that stealing? We're stealing it from ourselves, dude. And the reason why we decided to put a film review into our 100th episode rather than just have the reminiscences is because they're a really, really popular movie duo. And it's a time travel nostalgia double act. It fits in really well. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I thought... Okay, so the synopsis for this. Once told they'd save the universe during a time travelling adventure... Two would-be rockers from San Dimas, California, find themselves as middle-aged dads still trying to crank out a hit song and fulfil their destiny. That is the IMDB synopsis. It's so long you have to go onto another screen to finish it. And it's really shit. But it kind of sums up the story. Well, okay. Yeah, so Bill and Ted face the music. The third film in the franchise, the last time we saw them was in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey from 91, a film that I went to the cinema to see at the Milton Keynes Point, which I think at the time was still one of the very few multiplexes in the country. And I was very, very excited because it was the first time that I'd been to like a multiplex and there was all these cinemas. It was amazing. That's more... Well, I was, I was going to sort of say, oh, it's half, half a lifetime ago. It's substantially more than half a lifetime ago. Yes, even more than half a lifetime ago for me. Yes, it has been almost 30 years since we've had a Bill and Ted film. So 1989, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure was this scrappy little time travel film that came out and then became a cult hit. Their bogus journey arrived a couple of years later and was again, was I think, is a scrappy little adventure that also became a cult hit. But it's interesting because I went back and watched the Bill and Ted films this week before watching Face the Music. And, well, the first one, I think, is still really, really lovely and charming and is genuinely funny. But they are scrappy, low-budget movies. Oh, yeah. One thing I really, you know, I mean, obviously, Back to the Future was a time travel comedy. But were they the first films just not to take the concept of time travel seriously? Because even Back to the Future kind of takes it seriously. Like, it's got stakes in terms of... It might be. If not, it's the one that really comes to mind because just because of the cultural impact of the film. But it is one of those films where they have that wonderful paradox of, why don't we just do this after we've sorted out all this and that will get us out of the situation we're currently in. So I'll put my dad's keys over there. Here they are. But what if we don't do that? But we did because we've got the keys. What yeah. I'd forgotten was the free, that that's the predestination on. paradox. Used to get you out of storytelling. What I'd forgotten, because I always remember the keys moment, but I always forget that... That then goes on for an, an entire rescue when they have to get all the historical figures out of jail, saying, well, let's leave a tape recorder over there so that my dad gets distracted and let's get a bin that drops out of the sky to get him and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, I'd forgotten they'd just really, really run with this. Then they do it again in Bogus Journey, <laughs> which is okay. I mean, it's, um, I have to admit, uh, watching Bogus Journey this time, it wasn't quite as good as I remembered it being. It was episodic and fitfully well, funny, but not as good as I Bogus thought. Bogus Journey's main contribution was kind of William Sadler was just dead. And he's still great in it. It is great when they are playing death in reference to The Seventh Seal, the Ingmar Bergman film, when the knight plays chess with death for his life and here they're allowed to choose their game. So they play battleships and they play like an American football board game because and they death, play Twister. Death keeps them basically like, oh, two out of three. That's right, because they're really, really good at these games and death isn't... isn't. Well, not, not even just necessarily really good, just... 
better than death. I always got the impression that they actually had spent quite a lot of time doing it because, of course, they don't study. They just muck about. But the thing with Bill and Ted, I thought, okay, all right, so watching these films is that the films themselves, well, the first one I think is really, really good fun. The second one is okay. But the idea of Bill and Ted, particularly with the actors Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter, just the idea of them as a double act is so nice that you just remember the films being a lot better than they are because those two are just really good fun together. And thank God they are because... That's really the only thing that I thought that the third film actually had going for it. Apparently, Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon, who were the writers, and they wrote the first two as well, have spent 10 years trying to get a third movie made. They've been pitching it since 2010. And I think with the current wave of nostalgia and 80s nostalgia, plus the fact that John Wick has really turned Keanu Reeves into a star again, and like a bankable star, I think they thought, okay, right it actually would be good to have another Bill and Ted film. So they got the money for it. Ten years they've had to write this script and it's like, it's exactly the same as your first two movies. It's the same story. And you have to rewrite the end of of Bogus Journey. You have to rewrite the end of Bogus Journey to make it a sad ending so that you can have Mm. this film. It's like, really, it's it's one of those films where you just say, oh, that really good happy ending. We're going to change that now. Yeah, that's the thing. I don't think you can really make a sequel to bogus journey without changing that because it is it's, it's literally a happily ever after it really is and i think and obviously it's quite difficult to get dramatic tension conflict out of a happily ever after oh maybe not the shrek films um <laughs> yeah i think i was sufficiently charmed by the concept and to, as you say i think part of it comes from knowing i know what this is going to be and again it's sold largely on i do think kiana reeves and alex winter who are now both, you know, middle-aged guys, still have really good chemistry. And they're kind of late middle-aged guys as well. I mean, they're you know, both into their late 50s. Are they that old? I'm oh, sorry. Yes. He um, said, he said, incredibly. Keanu Reeves, I think, is about 54 years old. 56. 56 years old. Wow. And Alex Winter, I think, is 54, 55. And one of the things that really, really bothered me about this film, and I did, and that's the thing, is that I like this film because of the people in it. The script, I thought, was just so lazy and so pedestrian. One of the things that really, really bothered me was that the women who play their wives are about 15 years younger than them. Mm. And they are noticeably younger, particularly the woman who plays Bill's wife. So Alex Winter's wife in this film is someone called, is it Jayma Mays? At first, I thought she was his daughter. There's a scene when they're going to couples counselling, walking down a corridor, and I thought she was his daughter. He's like, oh no, she's his wife. And I think it's Erin Hayes plays Ted's wife, so Keanu Reeves' wife in the film. She looks a little bit older than Jamie Mays, but they both look so much younger than Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter. And I thought, this the whole point of this film is that 30 years have passed, yet you're casting women who... If Bill and Ted had gone out with these women at the time, they'd have been going out with three-year-olds. Oh, fuck. Off. <laughs> and I the thing, it pretends, the film, one thing that did annoy me at the film, is it pretends that it's going to give the characters, both those characters, neither whose name I can remember, which maybe is telling on me or on the film, agency. Joanna. Jo- yes, the, 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 the medieval, you know, love princesses. And princesses. Joanna and Elizabeth. Yeah, um, that it's going to give them some agency. And in fact, like one of the big things, I won't spoil it, is about sort of saying, oh, you know, maybe they've got some choice. And then at the end of the film, they just kind of go, nah. It's one of those things where the women that the film is interested in are the daughters. So you've got Billy and is it Thea? So Billy played by Bridget Lundy Payne and Thea played by Samara Weaving. And Samara Weaving is just one of those great actors that you think, I just like everything that she's in. 
She was in a great film called Mayhem. She was brilliant in Ready or Not. And what the film gets wrong, I think, is that it. Well, you, it basically. I think, has, I think you're bearing. You might be bearing the lead of one of the things that you really, really like her in. Uh, what's a film that I absolutely adore that I really, really like her in? I don't, I don't know. What's that one? The Babysitter. Oh, right, yes. Yeah, she's good in that, yeah. Of which I watched both that and the sequel. I could watch last, the sequel. Last, I liked the Babysitter. Last, last weekend, but you kind of said, you know, that you thought it was really good, fun. And I was in the mood to watch something along those lines. And I watched it and went, yeah. It then, delivers. This is this is the best film that MCG has ever made. It really which is. is not a high bar, but... It, well, it really isn't, but it's like, it is the best film that McGee. What a fuck. Anyway. But the thing is, the film cast them as basically just the equivalents of Bill and Ted, and they act the same as Bill and Ted. So it's like, okay, so the main women in this film are basically the same as the older dudes. Oh, wouldn't it have been a lot more interesting if they weren't the same as them, if they had different musical tastes? But then they would have to figure out a new dynamic, and that is... Yeah, that's the thing, because... So you have Bill and Ted go off, and they have to write this song that's going to save the universe again. Oh, yeah, yeah, we've been here before, but anyway, that's the story of the film. They think, oh, we can go and steal it from our future selves because we will have written the song by then, which I thought actually was quite a nice little twist on what they've done before. A parallel story to this is that their daughters are going off to get these great musicians from history to help them write this amazing song. And that's one thing... Which is excellent adventure, basically. I also thought they weirdly did it in the wrong order. You know, they kind of went, okay, we're going to get Jimi Hendrix first, and then we're going to get Mozart, and we're kind of going to, like, jump back each step. Louis Armstrong. Yeah, Louis, sorry, Louis Armstrong, then Mozart. But then, yeah, I was just like, well, surely you'd start further, the furthest point back in time, and you'd bring recognisable musicians to the next steps. You'd be like, holy shit, I've got so-and-so. Let's move on, as opposed to, like... Yeah, I think they were thinking, oh, we need to get to London. We we, want to have Jimi Hendrix... In, in Vienna, yeah, like playing against Mozart on his harpsichord. But to be honest, that was I thought one of the best bits of the movie. I did actually quite like that, even though what you say is much better, makes much more sense. And it's like, okay, right? So you've given the women excellent adventure, and Bill and Ted are basically doing a bit of a weird kind of bogus journey. Why not just have them together, but have them the opposite of their dads? But they all have to do the excellent adventure together, and they realise that they have. Um, a commonality in their love of music and they could because all find... then you need to create have initially have conflict between those characters by having them be in any way different that you'd then have to resolve yeah which means you would have to write a proper character for the daughters which they don't do which then goes back to my point of like 10 years you've been trying to make this film but doesn't did you not want to rewrite this fucking script at any point one aspect of it feel and this, sorry, this is going to sound dismissive and crass even though I'm going to allude to it vaguely why start apologising now yeah. <laughs> but a hundred episodes of us being crass and <laughs> um, it doesn't one aspect of it in terms of the, the female character in terms of the two daughters feel more current than ten years old in terms of going into this film I thought I know exactly how this film ends yeah I thought that as well. well. I actually knew that from just from the trailer. But the message of that is like, you could have done that in a much better way if you hadn't have split them up into these two stories that mean that the other one can never properly get going because you keep having to flash back or flash across to the other one. And therefore it just seemed lazy and pedestrian in a way that was a surprise. But then I thought, well, actually Bill and Ted's bogus journey, that wasn't an amazing script either. So maybe I shouldn't have been expecting anything more. And William Sadler was good as death when they get him. But even then, I thought that was a bit of a wasted cameo. I thought... But it's not really a cameo, isn't it? A fair bit, isn't it? 
only really in like the last 20 minutes I think or something like yeah, that yeah yeah like the, yeah third act I'd say. yeah yeah okay yeah but despite all that I still enjoyed it because yeah. it's Bill and Ted. everyone in it is good yeah. it was like I mean I I do like Bill and Ted as played by those actors they're just good characters it was nice to see George Carlin in there I thought is it Kristen Charlotte yeah, um, as, yeah. as his daughter who's the one who's yeah, having to tell them why they need to do this mission and, and um, and it was good when they got Ted's dad back and that guy's still alive. It's obviously the actor who played um And to my Bill's memory, is... even though I did them quite recently, he doesn't look any older. He well, always looked... He looks older, but in a way that's like, you look exactly the same, just a bit older. God, you haven't changed apart from the fact that your skin's a bit, a bit looser. And then there's Missy, who is the woman who kept being their mums in the first two films because she'd married the other dad and then she's married another family member. That was funny. And that was... And it was all... It was, yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, look... The wave of nostalgia here is enough to carry me home. I just wish that you had spent just a two-week vacation in Hawaii thrashing out a better story than this because it could easily have been beefed up on a two-week holiday. You could have sat down and thrashed out a much better story than this, using this as a framework, but just making those changes would have made for a better film. But that said, I did like the effete rock star versions of themselves which I thought actually that was probably the funniest bit of the film if there's another one I'll probably watch that not sure there will be no won't be not unless there's a real because this is nostalgia gone. way for octogenarians to start making films about their previous glories but I don't know it could be 30 years from now when they're 86 I'm waiting in the context of this recording I'm gonna try and do my uh... Oh yeah, go on. That's, yeah, yeah. That's just, actually, that's just turned into me doing Stewie from Family Guy. Um, <laughs> but I've just realised that we can do the guitar thing, and you can put the noise in. Oh my god, yeah, excellent! <laughs> what excellent, a, excellent idea. <laughs> I'm going to leave a gap so people know we were just doing the guitar thing. That actually worked well still. I'd actually forgotten how much I used to like doing that when I was a teenager. That guitar riff is probably one of the great contributions that Bill and Ted has made to popular culture, the air guitar. And there's a nice thing at the end of Bill and Ted's bogus journey when you get all the headlines coming up of all the music mags and all the newspapers saying how they're basically bringing about world peace. And what is it? Um, air guitar playing proven to lower air pollution or something mm-hmm. like that. It's like, yeah, this is all nice. All right, so you're going to completely rewrite and undo all this for the next one. Anyway, so yes, that actually that little sting might be good to break up when we intro one of our guest speakers. Oh. Okay, so now you're going to hear from Ian Bird and his son Ronan Bird talk about films that they have watched in their father-son Thursday, and I think it's now Sunday morning viewing sessions when no one else is up and they want to watch a film that no one else wants to watch and they've been watching some amazing films and you're going to hear about them now and if you want to hear the episode that they appeared on it was of course episode number 65 when Ronan talked about his love of Godzilla king of the monsters and just completely showed us up and completely showed us up by correcting us on our film knowledge and my knowledge of Japanese movies and as anyone who knows me knows I love Japanese movies, so I was really, really happy that a 10-year-old corrected me on that. (laughs) But he was right. He was right, and he called it. So anyway, you are now going to hear from Ian and Ronan now. Hello. Right, so, Ronan, you and I spent lockdown when we couldn't leave the house, getting up the crack of dawn 
on Thursday mornings to watch films that nobody else in the house wanted to watch. Yeah. So it was your chance to watch films that your little brother didn't want to watch mm-hmm. and uh, you were going to have to fight to get a place at the table to see. So what films did you see? See if you can list as many well, as fast as you can. I remember at the beginning it was because I got my um, Criterion Collection of Godzilla DVDs yep. and there were things I haven't seen. So we started watching like Destroyer Monsters and then so it became like... Ghidorah, Free-Headed Monster, and then it sort of slowed into the rest of the Godzilla movies, and then we finished that. But then it was sort of that you told me to sort of watch um, Spirited Away, and then it's sort of leaving to Hitchcock movies. So what were the titles? How um, many how many titles can you name? I can remember that there were, in the Hitchcock, there was Strangers on a Train and Darlin for Murder, but Darlin for Murder was a bit later in the... Mm-hmm. time. And I remember we also watched Mimic, mm-hmm. Independence Day. Oh, yeah. Village of the Damned. Oh, that was a good one. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. That was a very good the one. The 1953 one, I think it was. Uh, I think it was the 50s one, yeah. Yeah. What else did we watch? We also watched... Escape from New York. Yep. Oh, we also watched um, John Carpenter's The Thing oh, in 1982, which I really enjoyed. That's it. We also watched... Um, them. We watched them. them. That was it. Yeah, that was the one with Kalen <laughs> that morning. And yeah. We had pancakes. That was really smart. Yeah, that was good. But what was your favourite film that we watched? I think, uh, well, I've not mentioned this one yet, but I think out of them all, the one I most enjoyed and the one I thought was sort of the more thought about and thoroughly put together was Memento. Memento, right. Memento. Why Memento? Memento made... Well, in the beginning, I thought this makes no sense. I don't know what's going to what's going on, and it started with Teddy being killed by um, Leonard, yeah. killing him because he's just getting his revenge. And I thought it was really cool how you see him um, have the photo and him waggling it, and so it's of the ordinary picture. And then yeah. you're just waggling it, and it starts to go a bit fadey. So it's like what you see actually becomes more vague, yeah, rather than and what I, the vague thing becomes more clear. Yeah. yeah, and it was only really when I saw Leonard's glasses covered in blood start to move and go back, and I see the bullet roll the way, and I see yeah. Leonard scream, and then just turn the other way. I realised that it was actually all going backwards, and that Leonard was actually just got the piece of paper and was just. Um, well, you got the photo and started to um, make yeah, it, it more colouring. Deve- yeah. It was undeveloping because it was all running backwards. So yeah. what did you like about the film, though? Well, I thought that it, it all made sense, although it was all backwards. And I think <laughs> it all made sense. I, mean, I think it was... But, but it that's was... not why you liked it, is it? What no. was it? What was it? Because all films make sense. Oh, yeah. Why, is it, why was this one in particular? Because it was amazing characters, amazing acting. And I think, best of all, I think I really liked the characters and how... Eventually, it all comes up to the thing you least ex- expect. What was that? Because I thought Teddy had done it, and for the for the whole of the movie, I thought oh, I didn't like Teddy. And I think every time it says Lenny, I, I just <laughs> Lenny. Re- I just got really annoyed by it. And then when we meet Natalie, like, but the last scene for her, but the beginning scene for us, I think that um, she seemed really nice, and she and Leonard could trust her. But it was only really then when it started piecing together that Natalie was actually just tricking him and being mean, mean to him and saying mean things about his wife and commenting things yeah. and just being like that. I thought she's actually not really nice and she's just tricking him. But then last time we you you said that she was actually just... She felt sorry for him in, in the end you for get, her. Well, it's kind of weird, isn't it? Because as far as she's concerned, you've seen her be 
the heroine who's supporting yeah. him and then yeah. earlier you say actually she's awful and she's tricking him yeah. and before you, that you see that actually she feels a little bit sorry for him and then before that you see actually this guy just showed up yesterday dressed as my boyfriend driving my boyfriend's car yeah. pretending to know nothing about my boyfriend who has just gone missing so it's like from her perspective this yeah. has just been a nuts couple of days and yeah yeah and I, I thought that worked really well yeah um at the end of it though you were just yeah. constantly saying it's so sad it's yeah, so sad because because in the middle, um, you notice that Leonard keeps talking about um, him being, wasn't it, uh, a therapy guide or something? No, you see, what he was, he was an insurance yeah. wasn't he? So he was trying to figure out if someone was lying about a health problem. Yes. And he was remembering Sammy and Jankis. Sammy Jankis and his wife. So Sammy Jankis got into, wasn't it, an accident, yeah, car crash, a, yeah. where she survived, but he got a head injury and got amnesia. That's it. He had Finding Dory disease. Yeah, Finding Dory disease. Yeah, no, say no more. I completely yeah. understand that reference. Yeah. So um, as soon as you figure out that, I mean, the wife was a bit sad because of it because she didn't actually believe that he, he had the problem. Yeah. But then she eventually, they had to go through tests. I mean, um, you had to get Jimmy to um, test the little uh, metal ob things. O objects and he picked Jankis, up the one yeah. and he just electrocutes and he says, test this, you, <laughs> yeah. And he does the middle finger like that. He keeps doing it again and again the and again. The weird thing is, those two actors are really, I only know those two actors, one playing Sammy, the one playing Sammy's wife, from sitcoms and comedies. So uh, yeah. Sammy Jankis is from Groundhog Day. That was it. That I, I recognised him. Yeah. Wait, wait, who was He's it? He's the one who goes, Bing! Uh, not sure. Ned Ryerson. Yes. Exactly. Yes. And she is in a sitcom called Frasier where she plays a really hilarious but horrible woman called Bibi. And she's very, very funny. And I need to yeah. show you her in that because because right. you see her so sad and doomed in Memento, you want to see her being charming and malicious yeah. in this other thing. You like that because, of course, Sideshow yeah. Bob is, yeah. is Frasier. But yeah, um, but then the wife gives Jimmy the test while giving her the insulin because she's diabetic. She, yeah. she she pretends that it's her time again and again and again and seeing if he's actually a good man Yeah, and that he actually does have the problem. And it was weird because it reminded me of when I used to set the clock forward to trick you into going to bed earlier than it was bedtime. Yeah, I didn't like that. No, yeah. well, no I didn't like that. No. Shh. <laughs> like, what were we talking about exactly. but yeah and then then you realise to the end of the movie when he gets his revenge on the first time I said that I think he's actually already got his revenge you said and that halfway through the film he actually, yeah he actually did that was really cool and it was actually on um, Natalie's boyfriend yeah isn't he also called Jimmy uh, no I don't think anyone was called Jimmy really no it's jo uh, Jim, oh it's Jim James wasn't it James, yeah. James oh. Gamble and yeah and, and Teddy was actually called John that's it. So what's yeah. the next film we're going to watch? Um, I'm not sure yet. Uh, I'll think... You said something about Night of the Living Dead. Yes. I think it's a very good time to watch Night of the Living Dead if you're yeah. up for it. <laughs> All right. Well, lovely. Yeah. Well, um, that's us then. So yep. this is... We're recording this because the Robs are doing... This is their 100th podcast they've done. Yeah. This is their 100th. Yeah. That's pretty smart, isn't it? Yeah. This is cool. So yeah. thank you very much, Robs, and I hope to see you soon. See ya. Bye. And that was lovely. Is there anything else you want to say about Bill and Ted before we move on to our favourite movie moments and experiences? No. <laughs> so favourite movie memory was one of the things that I asked a couple of our speakers to talk about. And they came back with some really, really quite lovely stuff that's now forcing me to think about what was my favourite movie memory. I am going to say, do you know what? It's actually one of those things where my favourite movie memory... Mm, 
it's a tough one this because of course yeah there are so many and it might not even be one that was at the cinema i think my favorite movie memory might be not even a movie it was it was so pizza that i had that one time do you know i like food it was july 1981 Definitely too young to have lost your virginity on that day. It's like, it's like, it's like, it's like I'm, trying to be, I'm trying to get ahead of what, of what horror is about. So. <laughs> so you're saying all this stuff, I have to leave it in now because it's quite funny. Okay, it was Wednesday, the 29th of July, 1981. Oh no, is this stand by me? Are you going to stand by me now? Did you, there are corpse involved. You say that, you don't know how right you are. It was, of course, the day that Prince Charles and Lady Diana got married. And it was a national holiday and there was a street party on my road and every single road, I think. It was this really amazing day. It was very sunny. I was a kid. I remember in the evening, we all went to one of the neighbor's houses. And I remember being in the living room. It was all the adults were there and all the kids were there. And on the telly, this advert came on and it said, movies coming to ITV this autumn. And the first shot was of Chrissy running into the sea at the beginning of Jaws. Jaws. And the room just went electric. All the adults went, Jaws! Jaws! Jaws are going to be on TV! Jaws is going to be on TV! And all the kids were like, what? What's going on? What's going on? Just the disbelief that Jaws was going to be on telly. And I just so vividly remember that moment of going like, what is this then? What's this? And then my mum telling me, this is a film about a shark and then she told me the story of Jaws and it's like, okay, right, so when's it going to be on then? Like, tomorrow? No, September. Now, at the end of July, September's not really that far away. Unless you're a child. But when you're six years old, it's like, well, it might as well be never then. <laughs> How could I possibly wait to see Jaws? A film that I'd, I think I'd seen it in the video shop and just really, really liked the cover, but I had no idea that that was from Jaws, yeah, that shot of her running into the water. But just that electricity of just excitement and anticipation. I think it's also because it, it was the adults and it's like, yeah, why are the adults all really excited? What's going on? Yeah, that was just a bit of a formative moment for me, I think, in terms of um, of cinema and just knowing the power of cinema. Actually, which then leads on to another favourite movie memory, which again wasn't at the cinema because I grew up in the 80s and cinema in the 80s, particularly in this country, just gone into the toilet a bit, which meant all the cinemas are closed down. Hmm. We'll see if that happens again. And a lot of them have been turned into bingo halls because in the 80s, bingo became this massive thing and much more profitable than cinema, which oh, seems that, so weird. Is that why you keep on yelling bingo in the cinema? No, that's a different reason, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> the very different reason. Equally upsetting? <laughs> Equally upsetting. <laughs> And there was a cinema that was near us and it turned into a bingo hall. But during the summer holidays, they had still kept the screen. So they would put on kids films. So you would go there to see the Disney re-release. I remember seeing the Aristocats there and the Black Cauldron. But most of my film viewing was done on video. And I remember watching The Karate Kid one afternoon at my nan's house. And it was me and my nan and my mum and my auntie. And again, I just heard this was quite a good film. And the Karate Kid was just like, it was, it's just a perfect wish fulfillment film. And there's an argument that cinema works well because it's just an example of wish fulfillment that you can have on a huge collective scale. And the Karate Kid, you can learn karate and become a black belt within a single term of school is one of the best examples of wish fulfillment. And you get the girl and all that kind of stuff. 
And there's a moment, you've seen The Karate Kid, right? <laughs> Sometimes I like to ask Rob a really stupid question to see if this will be the time he takes a swing at me. But not today. So remember that bit when Daniel gets his knee fucked up at the end when they sweep the leg? And, uh, no, what was it when Chris says, I want him out of commission? And Bobby says, But Sensei, I can beat this guy. I don't want him beat. But I'll be disqualified. Out of commission. Brilliant. And I think he kicks his knee and completely screws it up. And then Mr. Miyagi has to do the thing with the hands where he, he rubs his hands together to make them really hot. And then he puts his healing touch on him, which is then referred to in the Cobra Kai series in a very, very funny way. Anyway, that moment when he slams his hands together and you get the orchestra go boom and then the strings come in and I'll try and get the sample for it. My auntie just burst into tears at that point. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, this is really exciting, isn't it? This is the power of cinema here that someone can just burst into tears because they're so into what's happening so on their screen. involved in. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, this is a powerful medium. And I think I was about 10 at that point. It's like, I am going to dedicate the rest of my life to this, the study of this medium. And I can't imagine it getting any better than The Karate Kid, but who knows, it might do. I'm not sure that it has, but it's come close. So I would say they are two of my favourite movie memories. Anyway, so um, what would be yours? I've been kind of desperately trying to think it's odd in the same way that somebody says, you know, what's your favourite film? Or even what what films do you like? You go, I'm sure I've seen a film at some point in my life. Yeah. I'm, like, <laughs> I'm surrounded by DVDs and Blu-rays. There must be. But what's a memorable experience think, you had as a family watching a movie when right, you were a kid? It, it, it all began on the 31st of August, 1997. <laughs> <laughs> well, came down in the morning and the cartoons weren't on for some reason. <laughs> So funny. While you were lamenting the fact that the cartoons weren't on because there had been a um, traffic accident in Paris, I was watching The Untouchables in widescreen because it had just been released on video in widescreen and I was very happy. Anyway, so... Um, it's really a very small... If you grew up in the period where VHS became available, you suddenly realised that you, you you probably swam in quite a, a limited cinematic pool. Because, yeah, uh, my, one of my very first pretty formative memories involving film does relate to Jaws. Um, being around, <laughs> being my, around my mate's Rory's house, slightly more lax with the movies that we got to watch because I saw Jaws around Rory's and I, I trying to figure out how old I was because around that time I also saw Austin Powers when it just arrived on, must have been like, <laughs> so it must have been like 1998. That would have been 1998. It, it was seven when it first came out, but I'm thinking when it came out on BHS. No, it was actually, um, it was 1996 when it first really? came out. So okay. it was 1997. Yeah, because I remember, because I saw Austin Powers before going into my final term of university. Very, very memorable time in my life. So yeah, so it would come was, out in 97. I was maybe eight. Maybe it could have been on VHS by that point. Right. So, like, so I was maybe eight and I, I saw Jaws and the opening sequence with with Chrissy, I still got incredibly vivid memories. I like I, I remember the the room that I was in when I saw it because you know just contextually, um, I remember the room I was in when I saw Austin Powers. <laughs> but also, yeah, um, The Untouchables was one of the first films that I had on VHS, maybe very early teens, and I had a very small TV in my room and I had a VHS player in my very early two thousands. Like, yeah, and. Just sitting there in my room, lying on my front on the tiles, watching these films and thinking, yeah, I think I like this. I recently watched with my folks, and this this was lovely. We watched um, Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood, the Tom Hanks, uh, Mr. Rogers film. And my my mum's a big proponent of something called uh, she calls them nice films, and she doesn't doesn't have to be sappy. I mean, like Paddington Two is a, is a, is just an archetypal nice film. And I get in my own way, I like nice films. 
this was a film that kind of does try to engage with the idea of what it means to try and be decent and try in a world that doesn't always lend itself to being in a world where you know you feel angry and you feel stressed and you feel upset and you know this year perhaps more than any other certainly during my lifetime I can understand you know I've been lucky enough to have a family there supporting me and to be able to be at home you know, again, sort of got very profound on the first question. That 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 for me is. Yeah, so, what is your favourite movie memory? Yeah. Rob? <laughs> I know what you mean, though. I think what you said can be summed up by the that moment in the Karate Kid when he does the crane technique, which is quite simply one of the most emotional moments of cinema. Well, I think it's the magic hands technique. I, I think it really covered it. Like, you know, yeah. That's just a build up to uh, the crane technique. Oh, anyway. Um, that was very nice. Well, usually it's just me being glib while other people, while other people do the, while yeah, do, do the, the script on this do the one. intellectual, emotional, emotional heavy lifting. It's usually just me. Okay, then. Well, on that note, let's hear from another speaker, Tessa Scott. We'll go for Tessa now. Tess was absolutely great on episode 92, where she talked about Whiplash and just a great speaker on that. And she was so good that we had to get it back for episode 93, which was The Vast of Night. And she was equally brilliant on that. So as episode 92 and 93, if you want to hear more from Tess, but over to you, Tess. Hello, this is Tess. And I was a guest on the movie Robcast for the episode with The Vast of Night and also for Whiplash. It was an amazing experience. And so I'm very happy to do this soundbite for the guys. So my favorite film is the 2005 Kira Knightley version of Pride and Prejudice. So this came out when I was 14 and my sister would have been 16. And we just connected with this film instantly, probably because it was about sisters, but also it's about love and we would have been interested in boys by then. I think we watched it and then we got the video as well and just had it on repeat. And we still do. If I'm feeling a little down, I'll just pop it on and I know my sister does the same. And... If we having a conversation, it's not often that uh, we won't quote Pride and Prejudice at least once. Some of our favorites are, don't judge me, Lizzie. Don't you dare judge me. We say that all the time to each other. Another one is, are the shades of Pemberley to be thus polluted? Uh, we love the way that uh, Judy Dench's character said polluted um, as two girls from South Africa. Obviously, you know, we didn't, uh, weren't used to people speaking like that. And it's just become such a big part of our lives. Everyone, you know, our friends and family know that we love that film. And even if you haven't watched it and we're saying something a bit weird, chances are we're probably quoting Pride and Prejudice, although we've we forced it on um, most of our family. And I think it's just the experience of the connection I feel to the film and then to my sister. One of the things we did the most growing up was just watch movies I remember when we got Charlie's Angels from the video store, uh, we would g- get it all the time and then try watch it at least three times before we had to give it back. We'd spend the rest of the day air punching whatever we could, just feeling really badass. We did the same with Mean Girls. That's another film that we just quote to death. And um, more recently, Frozen. That is now my sister's favorite film, probably. She just watches it all the time. Every time I watch it, I cry at the end, I think just because of the the sisterly love. And it's been so great bonding with her over these films with about sisters or strong female characters. And I've obviously got films that I like that I've watched on my own, but my favorite film experiences are those that I've shared um, with people and, and especially my sister. And yeah, so... 
That's it. And you heard from Tess, and wasn't that amazing? Okay then, so next... Well, actually, there are two, but I think that you said that you might have them combined. So the best cinema experience and the oddest cinema experience. Did you have one story for this? No, no I, think, I think I've got... In terms of best cinema experience, because, you know, I think we've talked about previously, Whiplash was an amazing cinema experience to just, you know, especially a bunch of critics. Actually, no, that's unfair. Critic, critics do tend to be... I think they tend to be pretty attuned to what's going on, but maybe they're also slightly... They, they're more likely to have seen it before and maybe less not react. But yeah, everybody just applauding at the end of Whiplash after the uh, climax was remarkable. Actually, there was a film last year that the critics, including ourselves, all burst into applause at, at the end. Because it, it's interesting, after our talk about Whiplash and you and Tess talking about what you thought it was and also the director kind of confirming that you were right and it being a much... It being a more pessimistic film than I thought it was, and also I think actually a less interesting film than I thought it was. My estimation, or Whiplash went down in my estimations after our talk. It was like one of those where I was like, oh, it's not actually as good a film as I thought it was. It's a good film. It's not a five-star film anymore for me. Ouch. I know. There was, I just thought, I'm sorry, but if this is what Whiplash is about, then... And you'll have to go and listen to the episode to uh, to hear what Rob and Tess talk about. And they are correct about it. I just don't find that as interesting as what I thought it was about. Okay, I was wrong on that. And the film itself has actually dropped in my estimations a bit. Then again, film... If I remember correctly, you did just think about it. it was about a man who loves drumming. So <laughs> I did. I thought it was about Animal from the Muppets. It was like, he grows up to be Animal, right? <laughs> Does he not grow up to be Animal? <laughs> I thought this was... I thought this was a prequel I was watching to The Muppets. I've seen this film five times and, I've, <laughs> and I listened to the audio commentary and it's not an animal story. <gasps> and then I then did an animal was I smashed up everything in the room because I was so angry. Yeah, luckily we recorded that one to yours. Yeah. So, um, but the film that everyone applauded at last year was The Peanut Butter Falcon and that film, ooh, that's just a lovely film and it's brilliant. So, yes. Sorry, I interrupted you there. So what were the... Uh, so what... Whiplash was special. Actually, I think, you know, almost anything that takes place or has taken place as part of the London Film Festival at the Odeon Leicester Square is going to... It's always going to be special. Like, it, no matter how throwaway the film ultimately is in the context of life. <laughs> uh, I mean, like, you know, seeing the Mon 66 last there. Yeah, That's you know, so was, weird. That was in my head yeah, as you was, said it. was, you know, it's it's a big silly racing film. It actually got some emotional part to it. But again, that was like, you know, I don't think it's necessarily a film that people are going to be talking about years from now, but it was, it was a good experience. Um, also seeing less good films, not in the context of London Film Festival, particularly Batman v Superman. Oh, yes. <laughs> when, uh, when you and I were set up on the balcony next to each other, and the, roughly the point, and we We've spoiled this before. We'll spoil this again. It's at the point at which Batman starts gunning people down. We just looked at each other as if to say, this is fucked, right? I hate that film because it gets everything so wrong. But anyway, well, there's a, there's a few things that it gets right, which has been really annoying that it gets a lot of things really wrong because it's like, well, you you know how it works, but you were choosing to be hateful anyway. There's yeah a moment in a dream sequence when Batman uses a gun. And I thought, oh, that was a bit unfortunate, but it's a dream sequence. So that's fine. And then he does it in real life. It's unequivocally a gun killing that Batman perpetrates on a baddie. Yeah, we looked at each other at the same time. And then you just did that thing where you run your finger across your neck as to say, this is just dead on arrival. And it's like, yeah, this, I didn't think it was going to be good. I was kind of hoping it might be all right. I just didn't know it was going to be this bad, bad film. And yeah, I also saw, you know, I saw Suicide Squad and Will Smith trying to get everyone clapping and trying to psych everyone up for a film that clearly, but you know, 
Best case scenario, been absolutely butchered by the studio. <laughs> I, I don't think it quite got to the point where when I say suicide, you say squad. But you know. <laughs> and but yeah, at the end of the film, yeah, at the end of the film, somebody whooped. Like somebody genuinely got something out of it, and it's like. I love the notion that you could articulate to me what it was that you... Yeah, could you tell me what it was? It's like, got... oh no, he communicates solely in whoops. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's, yeah, that's just how he talks. Just about the London Film Festival. Uh, the Irishman last year. So me and you in, in the pole position seats in the upper circle at the Odeon Letter Square, having queued... I think I got there at about six in the morning to go because it was like an eight o'clock screening, wasn't it? And it was it's like, I do not want to miss this one. And this is going to be the hot ticket. Yeah. And actually it wasn't, it just wasn't that packed in the end, but it was one of those where it was still, it was one of those where I, yeah, I wasn't prepared to risk it. We got the same seats as we got for Le Mans. And yeah, just, it was one of those where it's like, this, this is good. This is a great cinema experience. And that's one of my favourites. Many great places to sit at the Odeon Leicester Square. Um, but those two seats in particular, I think I don't think there's a better cinema experience to be had than to be sat in those two seats. Unless you're talking about the BFI IMAX, I think, yeah, in a regular cinema, those two seats at the front of the upper circle, I think that the back row uh, that's of the, the BFI like, IMAX, that's my favourite for me. I love I love the BFI IMAX, but if it came down to it, if it's a film that I want to I want to experience, like just have it on like that grand scale, I think the IMAX is unbeatable. But I think if it's a film that I really want to connect with, what about The Shining though? Because you said that you saw The Shining at the IMAX and said that it was a really quite profound experience. The, shi- the Shining, you, yeah, is- I don't know if it had been left profound. I mean, it was the first time I'd ever seen it on the big screen, right? So that you know, that was part of it, and you know, it's gone on. It's gone from a film being a film based on that that I really like to a film that's gen- one of my genuine favourites. Weirdly enough, I have a theory about The Shining, <laughs> which is the theory that every theory is simultaneously right and wrong, and plays <laughs> into the whole notion that it's a film that's about the danger of falling into patterns, which you can hear more about on the episode where we talk about that which was episode 74, where we talk about Dr. Sleep and the Joker and the Prince Andrew interview. (laughs) But Rob also talks about his theory of The Shining being around patterns, which is well worth a listen, because I think you're right. Prince Andrew, only the the second worst thing to happen to Pizza Express in the last 12 months. A joke that I've said before. (laughs) But a good joke is worth the repeating. Yeah, my favourite movie, or my best... Similar experiences. I mean, obviously there are so many. There's watching films on the film course at university. Just seen some of the best films there, like, yeah, The Lady from Shanghai. Talked about Broken Blossoms on the 50th episode. But The Lady from Shanghai and just discovering Orson Welles for the first time. That was amazing. Actually watching The Thing there as well, which seeing it in widescreen for the first time, because that was on the horror film course. That was amazing as well. I had a similar thing of seeing... There uh, at the London Film School, um, they used to do um, screenings once a week. I think it was Thursday morning. Alan Bernstein, a really, really good lecturer, used to do a seminar afterwards, kind of you know, just speak about it. From um, but yeah, I saw us. Uh, I've ever seen a Hitchcock film on the big screen. It was during that seminar. You know, I think my favourite Hitchcock is probably in this. I don't know. This is controversial. Uh, Shadow of a Doubt. Hitchcock would agree with you. That's his favourite film of his own oh, as well. Good, so, yeah, I'll take that win. And I also saw some John Ford, a lot of Nicholas Ray. I think we watched pretty much everything Nicholas Ray ever did. And yeah, there is something about being with people who are there, not because they just want to see a film, it's because they love film. You know, they've had to not sacrifice to be there, but they've made a big decision which has led them to be there. Yeah, yeah the idea that you're with a bunch of people who who, ha- who are in some way committed to the idea of film. 
Yeah. And in some way, really have a love and appreciation for that is like, this isn't just going to the cinema to watch something. They're there because they really want to engage with an art form and without being too creepy. Sometimes, you know, you, you sort of look around and it's really nice to see people staring raptly at the screen. Now, obviously, you're breaking by looking at them, so you've ruined it for everyone. Um, <laughs> but yeah, just people staring raptly in you know, the shot of the face lit by the light of the screen. A wonderful romantic image. And just thinking, I do not know all of you. I might not like all of you, but I'm kind of with my people. Yeah, we're having a shared experience yeah, right now. Yeah, we are, yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. I'm more comfortable in a room that's largely comprised of critics because you know they're not going to get their phone out and stuff like that. Or it's going to, although that has happened, but they're less likely to get their phone out. That said, there are some times when you're watching a film with the general audience. And again, it sounds a bit snobbish, but sorry, but general audiences can be fucking rubbish sometimes. And I've had my fair share where I've had to tell people to turn off their phones. Mul- but a film that kind of crosses mul- over. Multiple times in with you, you're far better at it than I am because I just tend to sit there and, and grumble. You know, um, I don't know if that qualifies for honest experience, but seeing watching All my, all the Money in the World, the, uh, the Ridley Scott film, I think I might have mentioned this previously, and seeing a woman a couple of rows ahead of me, very visibly on her screen, Look up the Paul Getty kidnapping. Oh God, I didn't know that. <laughs> on Wikipedia. <laughs> and it's like, oh. you're watching it dramatised. Stop it. They are going to tell you the story. You are literally spoiling it for yourselves. And for me. And that's the thing is, I have a tension, I chew tension for all the trailers and all the adverts and all that kind of stuff. And for the first five minutes of the film until I kind of gauge what sort of audience I'm with. And if I was to look at it as a percentage, it, I'd probably be quite surprised at how high the percentages of having a decent audience but you do remember the ones where you're having to tell people again and again to turn off their phones but those films where it just works and the audience are all into it with a general audience that can just be the most magical thing in the world and talks to what you were talking about and just having the shared experience and films that i've had where that's happened is um well jurassic park was one but that was a long time ago before phones came out that you could walk around with and afford so that was one. I mean, that would be a commitment to being a dickhead back then. Well, then again, but yeah, but people did used to talk and you would just have talkers. Now you have the screen just light up. But yeah, there was um, Outbreak actually was another film that everyone was just really into the idea of that. And I don't think that, that a lot of people had seen a pandemic movie at that point. Uh-huh. Or like an epidemic movie is, is there. But that one just went down and the entire audience were really excited by how this story was being told. Um, and Wonder Woman actually was like a most recent example. I think because there was a lot of. Was that? Did you see that at uh, the cinema at Sky? No, no, no. I saw that at the Limax uh, at the Cineworld Leicester Square on Saturday morning. And as we said, it, there was a lot of families there. Everyone loved it, and it was one. And you could actually see that a lot of the kids, particularly the girls, were kind of having a formative experience in terms of just really understanding how wonderful cinema could be. And that was an unexpected pleasure that was to watch that film with that audience. And actually, in terms of best cinema experience, so best cinema going experience, one of them has to be, there was a period of time when I was at university. um, When I went home during the holidays, mum and I would go and see movies because mum loves movies as well. And there were just some really nice experiences of going to see films with her at the Peterborough Showcase, which was actually was a very, very good multiplex. And it just had nice seats and the screens were good and they just seemed to really care about giving you a good viewing experience, even though it was just off of a dual carriageway. But it was massive. But yeah, so um, I remember seeing the Winona Ryder Little Women there with her and that and just being really surprised by what a great film that was. Turns out it's quite a good story. 
Yeah, it is. Like, and it's, it turns out it's quite hard to get wrong. But but actually, my mum didn't like the most recent version, even though I thought that was very good. And it's weird because we went to see the most recent version last Christmas. And she loved the fact that I reminded her that it was 25 years since we'd been to see the Winona Ryder version. Um, and she's like, oh, really? It's been that long? It's like, yeah, 20... A generation has passed by. So what you're saying is that you ruined the new version for Yeah, you ruined the new version for it. Another one, actually, was Carlito's Way, which we watched... Oh. Um, and I think there are about six of us in the audience and it was on this massive screen. It was absolutely great. And that was one where, that's just, well, that's just one of my favourite films, but just watching that, you know, studying film and just seeing, uh, I think that's probably the last great film that Brian De Palma directed and certainly the last visually great movie where he just, the things he does with a camera in that film were just absolutely amazing. So they were really, really nice movie going experiences. And I've had some good ones with my mum since, but I always remember the Peterborough Showcase as being a great place to see films. I don't think when I was a kid we were a big cinema-going family. I, we, it might have been, you know, my autobiographical memory is terrible, so this, you know, this is all stretching me. Hence my drifting off to philosophical musings to discuss, you know, discuss the fact that, <laughs> that you can't remember I can't remember anything. Uh, I think I saw the X-Files. I think I saw the sequel to the X-Files movie. It's like, what is life? And it's like, that wasn't the question, Rob, but sure, <laughs> go off. <laughs> but I, when I was in college, um, me and my mate Charlotte used to go to the cinema at least once a week, probably maybe multiple times a week. You know, this was 2007, 2008, so we saw The Dark Knight together. We saw Watchmen, we saw, I think we saw Avatar. We saw a generation of films come and go at that point, very late teens, early adulthood. Films that were always kind of epochal, and but I've also kind of set the trend for a lot of what came since. I don't remember seeing Iron Man with her, but I'm almost there's we would have seen Iron Man. Yeah. I remember seeing Moon. That was special. That was up in Dubai Mall. You know, I spent a lot of my childhood out in Dubai. And uh, this was like a multi, multi-story cinema, you know, big mob, like, you know, really deluxe. So I was loose end. So I went to, bought one ticket to see Moon, heard about it, Duncan Jones, really good buzz, sci-fi, indie sci-fi film, and ended up on this, the smallest cinema, I think, right in the upper corner of this complex. The only one in there by myself watching this film about isolation and paranoia. <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah this would be completely different if there was anyone else in here but there isn't it's just me watching moon by myself certain films just have conditions transpire in such a way that it's going to be kind of hard to reproduce mm. a lot of films i love i would not voluntarily choose to re-watch them because your relationship to them changes first time that you see them and you form that it's you at that time having a certain emotional reaction to that film based on where you are in your life. And if you have a really perfect, and I would consider that one of my favourite films, you know, for one view, going back and revisiting it is always a risk because you change, your relationship to the film changes. Whiplash, I think, going back and rewatching that, I don't think it's a worse film than I remember it being. But it's odd, my relationship with the film has changed having rewatched it. Because I've now got this mirror image of the first experience to hold up and say, here's the other time I saw it. So a lot of films I claim to love, I would find it very difficult to rewatch because I don't want to risk the relationship that I have with that film. I would say that the danger is in talking about it because then you end up in that whiplash <laughs> scenario where you have people explain to you, no, no, it's not about that, it's about this. All right, that's not very interesting. But you, <laughs> the, you, you can't choose to say, I don't care. That's that, well, that's the thing is, that it's like, that's an interesting thing there. But part of the discussion of Whiplash, which I really, and I actually much prefer listening to the discussion of Whiplash. I will watch the film again, but I think that the discussion, I think, is actually more interesting than actually watching the film now. But that comes into the whole David Lynch thing about the, you know, the reason why he's so opaque about what his films mean is because he says, well, if I say what it means, 
that's the only answer now that will be accepted because I'm the guy that directed it. So, well, going back to the prestige, they'll beg you to show you how you do the trick, but as soon as you, you'll, be, you'll be nothing to them. And there's something to be said in that in terms of, I think with David Lynch, it's one of those things where it's it's easier for him to say that because there are so many different interpretations that you can give to his films. But And also, the, a lot of the time, I think he doesn't fucking know. And he's he, not obliged I, to know. Because... I, think, I think he has an idea, but I think that idea could change from day to day. It could be one of those... Um... Well, the thing, I think when you discover something, when he, like David Lynch, a lot of his films do have that primal, fantastical quality to them where you can't quite articulate. It's not just that it's like a dream, but it has the limits of a dream that you're pretty sure you've had. It's not just like dreams, it's like a dream. It in some way fits the shape and form of something that you half remember. That's a knack. I think David Lynch, more than most other filmmakers I know has a knack, has tapped into something. I think he just has a vision and he Mm. is very good at putting that vision up on screen. And also when you have directors talking at length about what their films mean, you can get into the Donnie Darko audio commentary scenario where Richard Kelly then just said exactly what Donnie Darko meant. And it's like, really, that's what you think this film is? Because that's not half as interesting as what I thought it was. And with Donnie Darko, it's like, I refuse to think about that because that is a film I think that you can think, no, for me, this means this. Apart from when you watch the director's cut in which he puts all that stuff in to just explain everything that's going on and it's shit. That will then lead on to our oddest cinema experience. But before then, we will hear from our very good friend, Adrian Zach. And Adrian is going to tell you about his favourite movies and the films that he thinks you should see. And you can hear Adrian on episode 96 the Greyhound one, where he and I talked about all the family members we'd got who'd been in the Navy, and I forgot my mum was in the Navy. And you can also hear him on the Joker episode that we did, which was episode 70. So those are the two that Adrian were on, and he's on this one as well, and you'll now hear from him. Well, firstly, happy centenary, movie Robcast. My favourite movie memories. Um, I've been around for a while, so there's a fair few, but, you know, feel free to edit them. As a kid, um, we only got Disney movies reissued at half term, so I remember seeing most of those films as a kid on the big screen. Um, Things like Dumbo, Bambi, Pinocchio. But the one I remember the most is Robin Hood with um, the American football scene with Lady Cluck knocking down all of the uh, the henchmen, which I think is the first time I remember laughing so much I nearly peed myself. I remember seeing things like uh, my poor mum used to have to take me to see things like Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, The Black Hole, Warlords of Atlantis. They were all great films. Her Probably her biggest regret was taking me to see At the Earth's Core, which is another Doug McClure versus Man in a Rubber Suit movie, because the cinema was all hushed where, as he's fighting this monster at the end. And then a little voice yells out, stab him, go on, stab him. That was me. It's the only time I remember going to cinema with my dad. And I think that was probably why. Other fond memories, seeing being taken to see Jaws, and my cousin had warned me about the Ben Gardner scene, so when that came up, I hid, and the entire cinema screamed, and I just thought, thank fuck I did that. Uh, Life of Brian, friend's dad took us to see that when I was about 11 or 12, and we were both kind of really nervous, and it felt really taboo, and we didn't get all of it, but that's a film that stuck with me. Um, and being taken to see Star Wars when I was nine, uh, my friend's dad drove us up in his camper van to the Dominion Tottenham Court Road, where it was showing in six-track Dolby and 70 mil, and just sitting in the stalls and that ship flying overhead in the opening was just incredible and blew my nine-year-old mind. Greece was the first film I ever saw without any parent and that's 
an amazing film still and it's just great fun and blade runner which was the first double a i ever went to see by myself um it's equivalent of 15 now i think but that that film has stuck with me it's my all-time favorite movie and the other one was singing, seeing the very first sing-along of Sound of Music at what was called the Gay and Lesbian Film Festival, which is now Flair. And that was at the BFI. They had the Gay Men's London Choir. The Best Nun competition was won by a real nun, because you can't really argue with that. The um, compere was dressed in curtains, complete with curtain pole across the shoulders. And there was a woman dressed as a nun doing the live subtitling, which was giving helpful hints like pay attention to the curtains. They're important later. And that was just a brilliant, brilliant, fun film. Films everyone should watch. Well, Blade Runner. The final cut clears all the continuity errors and is the greatest film ever made. That and Apocalypse Now you should see on the biggest screen imaginable. Uh, Casablanca, you have to see that with an audience. You realise how funny that film is and how brilliant it is. It's the perfect script. Uh, Chunking Express, the Wong Kar Wai film, is a masterpiece. And if you want a film to get over the um, the one-inch barrier, as Bong Joon-ho refers to it, that's the one. It's just never been bettered the, but the film one film if I had to choose one film it's Miracle Mile I love that film beyond all reason when I was working for Sky Movies I even had to put a 10 pound put a 10 pound bet on it with my manager because I, I was adamant that that film was going to do really well on a Saturday night I was I was proved wrong sadly but it's a masterpiece and people are finally coming around to it the weirdest film experience, um, apart from obviously Sing Along A Sound of Music, which was, you know, a lot of people dressed as nuns and wearing curtains. Uh, the weirdest one, though, is probably seeing Total Recall in Times Square in New York in 1990, which my thought in my naive way was kind of like Leicester Square. It wasn't. It was still pre-Giuliani, pre-clean up New York. So the cinema had a hole in the ceiling with water coming in. There were children in the cinema because it's an r-rated film and you can take kids in if you're a parent obviously an irresponsible parent but a parent and um everyone was whooping at this seagal trailer for marked for death beforehand every time someone got thrown through a piece of glass there was a huge cheer from the audience and the scene where the woman advances on the baddie with a large bowie knife someone yelled from behind us cut his balls off bitch which made us kind of sink lower and lower into our chairs and possibly fear for our lives. Um, fun film, but absolutely unique experience. Congratulations again, guys, and uh, see you soon. And that was good. I have actually heard that because Adrian, he wins the gold star for getting it through really quickly. I sent him a Facebook message and within half hour, he sent something back. Okay, cool. So oddest cinema experience. Now you said you'd got one in mind the one that you have I've, got, in I've mind. got a number in mind one that I shared with you and I think it was oddest but in a way that it's almost contender for best I think I know what it is now because I think it's a film that we reviewed isn't it yes okay cool I, I'm pretty darn sure now that I know what this is and I'm going to say the episode number that I think it is and then... and you're going to expect me to know what film it was <laughs> no I think this is a reference to episode 14 so going back a bit what is the oddest cinema experience that we've shared? The Accountant. Yes, but episode 14, when we talked about The Accountant and Doctor Strange. Yeah, 
it just popped into my head as you were talking. Odd cinema experience that Rob and I had. It was The Accountant. Yes. Why was it an odd experience? The Accountant is a pretty odd film to start with um, uh, in a way that we went into in depth in that episode. It's currently available on BBC iPlayer. You know, I don't know how long the how long the window is to have a look at BBC iPlayer. It might be there. It's worth a look. But Rob and I, we went to see this film about um, an autistic assassin played by Ben Affleck. And uh, he has a very ordered house, you know, very ordered life, as you know, it's one of the sort of traits of autism can be. But there's a recurring sequence of shots where it kind of shows his house, neatly framed, and then it shows the doorway to his kitchen, neatly framed, and then it shows, like, his kitchen counter, neatly framed, and then it shows the inside of the kitchen drawer, neatly framed, with a knife and a fork and a spoon. And <laughs> the, uh, And the film occasionally would return to the sequence of shots. And it got so that every time you saw the draw, one wonderful individual in the audience would laugh. And they had a very specific laugh. I'm going to try and do justice to here. I think Rob might be able to do this better than if I get better than I do if I remember correctly. But it's in the lines of, it. <laughs> it was the oddest thing, this guy. I think that the accountant unsurprisingly came in for some criticism for its portrayal of autism. Um, I mean, it was our Man of Manda's Arsehole's film of that year. It is. I mean, I actually think that it's an enjoyable film because it is so insane. And it's a film that doesn't seem to realise just how insane it is, but it is insane. And the thing is, the shots would always be the same. It would be the, the exact same setup. So the whole thing being that he needs order in his life. So therefore, the film itself becomes very ordered in those moments. And there became a point, and it's actually repeated a couple of times in the film, or like a few times in the film, where he would go through this thing when he gets home and you would see the drawers being opened and stuff like that. And it got to the point where everyone recognised that it was going to happen again. And everyone got quite giddy, just waiting for this guy to go... (laughs) (laughs) And he never failed. It was like... Why is that so funny? But he just kept laughing at that bit. It was just a single laugh. Oh. And also, like, in its own way, like, as a cat to that sequence, it did have a wonderful sense of order and predictability to it. And that's a really good point, actually, on a number of reasons about that's a film that I've not gone back to because that, I think, is a film that would suffer if I went back to it because there is no way you could recreate that experience of watching that with that guy and everyone just waiting for him to go, <laughs> Also goes back to watching a film that works with an audience and you're worried about what the audience is going to be like because I was just absolutely sure that the audience was going to be a Tuesday night audience, half on their phones, half watching the film. And actually the film just worked really well for the entire crowd and um, I was completely wrong on that. And it was just one of those, that yeah, that is the perfect example of a film that I can't go back to because that first viewing was so good for such specific reasons that... Um, it can't ever be replicated. And yeah, that is one of the oddest experiences because I just do not know why you are finding that funny. It's so weird a thing. There was such a giddy atmosphere in that cinema by the end of the movie because of that. But yeah, that was a good one. Um, I'm trying to think, are there any... Oh, there was... um, I went to a press screening of Don't Breathe, which is that thriller where the kids break into the blind guy's house. house And And then discover that he's holding... he's, He's a psychotic who's... Yeah, he's like kind of an ex-marine as well, yeah. isn't he? So he's, even though he's blind... Played by Stephen Lang? That's right, yeah. Even though he's blind, he's actually very, very lethal. And he, of course, knows the exact layout of his house much better than they do. So they're out of their element and he's in his element. Anyway, there is a twist in that film and like a revelation in that film that then goes into a moment of complete gross out. And this was a press screening that I was at. So we were all press in there. We're all going to review the film. And it's a really odd and gross out moment that comes out of nowhere and really 
tipped the film into something being not as good as it was. One audience member was so offended by that, they started shouting at the screen. At the back of the room, and this was at the Paramount screen when it used to be on Golden Square before they moved. And yeah, he just said, this is fucking shit. This is fucking shit. To the point where at first I thought it was a character in the film because I thought it was like yeah, the 5.1 surround sound coming. I thought, who's still alive that I don't know about? And then looked round and there was just this guy at the back of the room just screaming at the screen. And there was the security guard next to him who was making sure we weren't oh, really? filming the film, thinking, not getting involved in this. I'm just here to make sure people don't record it. And it was like, oh my God. And then he just stormed out, which was the second time that someone shouted at the screen in the cinema that I was in. Sallow, which is a very, a very, very... Yeah, but it... <laughs> Go on. In all fairness, he this, this this person was yelling, can you sit down and stop wanking? So. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I said, well, I'm done. <laughs> I'm not a quick finisher. <laughs> so Salo is a Pasolini film. He was an Italian director during the 70s and he made very, very bawdy films. And then his final film before he was murdered is a very dark and confrontational film. And it's, it's based on uh, the Marquis de Sade book, The 120 Days of Sodom. And it's about these aristocrats at the end of World War II kidnap a lot of teenage boys and girls and proceed to act out the 120 days of Sodom. And it's a very good film and a very important film. It is confrontational in some of the stuff that's in it. But we saw it at the BFI. So you're thinking, well, this isn't... This like, could be an audience who you'd hope would be equipped and have gone with their eyes open. And, and the poster is pretty much says what you're going to get. Um, it's not like a cine world. So anyway, so this guy just again just started to scream how shit this film was and it was fucking rubbish and it should be taken off and they were there and then yeah, someone else was actually me but someone said leave if you don't like it just leave and um and he did after he shouted a bit more he then stormed out and it was like wow that was exciting wasn't yeah, it right. fuck off mary whitehouse and yeah a guy got so angry with the film that he shouted at it even though it was like, well pasolini can't hear you because he's dead but Anyway, so that was an odd experience. There's the time that I went to see The Force Awakens with my dad. For a second time, so it was the second time at the, uh, the Odeon in Guildford. And a guy, I think he was trying to detain a child, got out a huge, like, curator's ring of keys and started jangling it. <laughs> God. Which was bizarre, because it's like, I can't believe I'm watching this. Here's somebody who's got out, like, a, a ring of keys that in my mind, in my memory is like a foot in circumference. <laughs> and it's just like, a jangle, jangle, jangle. And it's like, fuck are you doing? <laughs> like... Why would you do that? Um, us going to the Q&A of Rules Don't Apply and watching Warren Beatty fail to complete an anecdote. Or a sentence. That was an odd experience because Warren Beatty was... He wasn't drunk and he wasn't on drugs. He just was on Planet Warren. I think apparently he's just like that. I think he's always yeah. been like that. I th he's not been a name dropper. He, sorry, he's either a name dropper and he starts, he drops for something. Yeah, in my experience, with so-and-so and then never finishes that story. Or it gets to the point where you expect the name to be dropped and the name is never dropped. So essentially you never hear like a complete anecdote. So he, ne he never tells you anything. So that was Edith Bowman and you could see Edith Bowman trying to get him to stick to the story but he just wouldn't and they did say something like yeah I mean that was a time when um, I was trying to develop something with Kubrick and oh I could tell you some stories there then do <laughs> that's why you're here tell us your stories you fucking Warren Beatty tell me a story about being Warren Beatty that was odd that was yeah just to uh, finish off this bit unless you've got um, no, no, no. an odd experience there was and I might have talked about it on the podcast before but there was a time when yeah I was overwhelmed by a film we ever had that we've been physically overwhelmed yeah. by a movie yeah so never let me go 
which I thought was the best film of the year. The Andrew Garfield, Carrie Mulligan, Kira Knightley film. I'd actually read the book before I went in to see the film, so I knew what was going to happen. But what happens in that film, I won't spoil it because it's actually a very, very good film, but the idea of what's happening to these people in the film, and it's not even graphically depicted, but it's just so vividly depicted in this one scene with Kira Knightley in this hospital corridor and Carrie Mulligan, I just couldn't handle it. It was like, I, I can't handle what's happening to these people and just the sense of mortality overwhelmed me and I got these big black spots in front of my eyes and had to stumble out of BAFTA because it was Adrian had taken me along as his guest and we sat in the middle and I had to say oh sorry I'm sorry and I stumbled out and then I got outside and there was this woman said oh you're right and I said yeah that film's just really intense and she said oh do you want some water I thought, yeah, yeah so I had some water and then went back and then watched the rest of it because it was really good but it was I, like I've never I, fainted at a film but that was the closest I came to. I haven't seen it for a while, but if I remember correctly, it's basically just the island, right? Yeah, it's a bit like the island, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which was a film that I didn't faint at, even though I wish I did. I tried to will unconsciousness There's, on me, but uh, I didn't... Uh... Weirdly, um, my one's a really weird one. It's not an emotional reaction. Uh, 40 Days of Night. The vampires in Alaska oh, okay, film yeah. had a panic attack. All oh, right. Had to leave. Don't know why. Wow. Had like a full-blown, can't breathe, can't breathe, I need to go outside. I've got asthma, so maybe that's got something to do with it. But like, you know, I had to go out and just go outside. I was like, no, that's, I think that's the only time I've ever walked out on a film. Because I was just like, I don't know what it was about that. But I'm not feeling well. See, that's an interesting one, because that's a film that I have gone back to. And it is really good, even though my first viewing of it was a Times Square movie theatre on a Friday night. And of course, it's New York, it's America, it's an R-rated movie. If you're a parent, you can take your kids in if you want. And lots of parents did. And they took their kids in to see this vampire film that has some really quite intense moments in it. I mean, Danny Houston, is Danny Houston. Is he the lead lead vampire? He is, when his eyes are blacked out, he looks really scary. There were these kids who were terrified. Absolutely terrified. Yeah, of course. Kept having to be taken out by their parents. Did the parents then take them back in? Yeah, they did, because there was... Parent better! (laughs) It was quite a big screen, but there were a few rows back, but I could hear this kid just crying in distress and saying that she wanted to leave. Finally, her mum gets her and takes her out, and it's like, good, because, yeah, this film was a bit too much, really. And then about 10, 15 minutes later, they come back in, and this kid's got some chocolate and, uh, and a drink, and it's like... I just can't believe you're bringing your kid back in to watch any more of this. And you're trying to placate them with the sweets and stuff. And yeah, but apparently that happens quite a lot in the States. Um, Because actually, you will have just heard from Adrian. He had a similar experience when he went to Times Square. Total Recall had the same thing. There were kids running up and down the aisles. So um, it is odd when you go to America and you get young kids in films where they shouldn't be because an arm means you can take them in. One of my best, actually, one of my best film experiences was probably in the the States in Boston, going in impromptu to see Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Okay. That's great for that. (laughs) This is unexpectedly good. Oh, they've decided to re-adapt and do a prequel to Planet of the Apes. Okay, see how that goes. Oh, really well. Yeah, it really is. I had no idea that film was going to be as good as it was. Okay, then. Yeah, I don't think we're going to top talking monkeys. Unless that's what people think we are. <laughs> no, we're cheeky monkeys. <laughs> Just trying to see how far we can push the film. Oh, fuck this shit. What else is on? Right, well, let's get on to now you're going to hear from Jason. So Jason Govindon, who was on the Tenet episode, which of course was episode 98. And he was very good on that. And he sent through a lovely piece is him and his daughter talking about a film that they have really enjoyed together during lockdown. 
and this incredibly mad year. So you will now hear him talk about that and also his daughter, Emily. So hi, yes, I'm Jason. So first off, I want to say uh, congratulations to Rob and Rob for reaching their 100th episode. I was uh, delighted that they asked me on to discuss all things Nolan and Tennant, well into the 98th episode, I believe it was. And I'm delighted that Rob's asked me to contribute for the 100th episode too. So uh, I'm going to discuss something a little bit different. Uh, I'm going to be talking to a lot of the, the families out there. So in lockdown viewing, when you've got two kids, uh, your viewing habits inevitably change. And if you're lucky, they get obsessed and addicted with a film that you enjoy too and uh luckily for me that was the case with my little one Emily and Emily discovered Sing and uh, absolutely fell in love with it and I couldn't have been more delighted because it is actually one of the best animated films I've seen in a really long time it's rare for a film to break out of the kind of Disney Pixar monopoly but Sing does it incredibly well so for those that don't know about it, it is effectively the story of a koala voiced by Matthew McConaughey that um, is in charge of a failing theatre and he decides to do one last show to try to save it. And the type of show he does is a, a pop idol or X Factor type show. All of these other animals voiced by Scarlett Johansson, Reese Witherspoon, Seth MacFarlane and Taron Egerton go to compete in this show so they're under the belief that they're going to be winning a massive prize and uh yet they audition and it's just their journey from the audition to the final show so what for me sets this apart more than anything is just the brilliant music they choose um it the audition scene alone is absolutely hilarious of all the different animals that do the audition and you've got music everything from Lady Gaga, to Katy Perry, to Sir Mix-a-Lot, to The Digital Underground, and my personal favourite, Christopher Cross's Ride Like the Wind, being sung by a snail. It's incredibly funny, it's heartfelt, it's got a good message, and kids really, really love it, and uh, don't have to take my word for it, here's Emily. Why do you like singing, Emily? Because I like the music. And what's your favourite songs? All of them. All of them. Which song is the best, though? Uh, Ash's song. Ash's song. And what does that song mean? Say bye-bye to your friends. I'm singing hello to you, friends. Saying goodbye to... Your old friends. And saying hello... To your old friends. That's nice. So Ash, as Emily was saying there, is uh, Scarlett Johansson's character. That She writes her own song, actually. So that's an original song. And Emily absolutely adores it. It's a really nice song with a really good message. And I think that's what captured so many audiences and so many kids to the film because it is more than just the singing. It's more than just the cute characters. People just really related to the characters and felt part of their journey to the final show because there was something that everyone could relate to in a, each one of these characters. So yeah, look, that's my recommendation. If you if you haven't watched it or you've been putting it off for ages because it's quite an old film now, make sure you get on it, make sure you watch it. And uh, who knows, maybe me and Rob, we can discuss when the sequel comes out in 2021 or 2022. Cheers, guys. Congrats again. See ya. Oh. oh. You haven't heard it. <laughs> but I'm taking your word for yeah, it. Yeah, it, it is lovely. I, I, I'm imagining what was said. And, I'm... and it was lovely. Okay, then. Well, actually, now we're on to our last question. So, film everyone should watch. 
Oh, that's a big responsibility. Like, well, uh, I'm not sure it has to be because um, it could be like, what's a classic film that people haven't seen? But mine's actually a film that hasn't been released yet, but I'm going to recommend it because I think everyone should watch it. You're going to tell everyone to go to the cinema? Is that like, is that what your recommendation is? <laughs> go go to the cinema during a pandemic? No, it'll probably get released to rent at home the same time it gets released at the cinema. But you know what? It's such a good film that you should risk contagion to go and see it. The filmmakers themselves wouldn't say that, but I'm allowed to. I don't know. I'm trying to think of a film that's just really... You kind of want to pick one that you think's underrated or that really accessible but not that many people have seen. I'm currently looking at my shelves now desperately for inspiration. Yeah, his eyes, guys, are just darting around. Do you know what? There's one there that I, I think I would strongly recommend. Go on. A bit of a gem. Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody. The one, the one Blu-ray on that shelf I'm possibly considering getting rid of. Mona Lisa. Yes, that's a really good one. Go on. I'm a big Bob Hoskins fan, but I think Mona Lisa is, for my money, his best performance. Playing there's this crook who's just got out of prison and has basically kept his mouth shut. And the, the crime boss, I think his name's Mortimer, who's played by Michael Caine, basically sets him up with, with a bit of a cushy chauffeur job. And uh, he ends up, I'm going to take it off the shelves just to make sure I do everyone justice. And basically he ends up becoming close to um, Kathy Tyson, who's essentially, she's sort of the hooker with a heart of gold character. What I think elevates it, I mean, it's by Neil Jordan, a director I really do like. I really like The Crying Game as well. Mm, um, it's all about the opening up of this character. Bob Hoskins, he was very near, famously very nearly Capone in The Untouchables, sort of bullet-headed, intransigent rage. Yeah. And But the fact that beneath that there is immediately a vulnerability and the idea that there is this guy who's trying to be something bigger than what he is... And what happens when you kind of dig into that a bit? And I just think it's an absolutely remarkable... I mean, I like, you know, I like a bit of sort of seedy British film noir. And what happens when you dig into that? And I think it's an astonishing performance. Then it's got a beautiful little Art Deco style poster that I've been meaning to buy that's on the front of the Blu-ray that I'm looking at, the Arrow video Blu-ray that I'm looking at now. And it's it's a Handmaid's Films film. I, I can always get on board with a, with a Handmaid's film. Handmaid Films film. Um, but what's one of... Your favourite films, your all-time favourite films they did. Oh, that was... Uh, Bru- no, what was it? I should be I should be remembering this. Life of Brian. Life of Brian, of course. Sorry, I, I, my, my mind immediately took, down the Bob Hoskins route. <laughs> right, as yes. opposed to well, they also, I think they also did The Long Good Friday They did well, The Long Good Friday as well, yeah, which was the... Uh, which is also great. And yeah, for some reason my mind split the difference when Brazil, which obviously <laughs> has... Uh, which obviously by Terry Gilliam. And also has the guy that played Capone... Says De Niro, who, yeah, who of course played Capone in The Untouchables. In, in The Untouchables, so it's a <laughs> it's weird all... Gordian knot of my unconscious. It's all coming back again. It's all coming back to that morning when we heard that Princess Diana wasn't with us anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your? Well, my one is a film that we saw last year at the LFF, Saint Maud, which is coming out in October at the cinemas, as you say, and um, probably to rent. Either then or very Coming soon afterwards. Play Pit near you. <laughs> yes, that's right. And it's brilliant. It's by uh, a first-time feature film director called Rose Glass. She has made, I think, at least one short that was highly acclaimed. She probably made another one. And yes, it stars Morfid Clark, who I think most people would probably know as the love interest from the personal history of David Copperfield. Or um, and she also played Mina. Dora. As uh, Dora. From the that's movie. right. Yeah. She also played Mina Harker in the BBC Dracula, which was on at Christmas last year. And she is a nurse who has now become a private carer and she's deeply religious and she is caring for uh, this character played by Jennifer Ely, who 
was once a dancer and has a terminal illness and Maud sees her as someone whose soul needs saving before she dies. And from that, we get an incredibly vivid character study of someone who is having some issues with the world and the way they see the world and their place in it. Just absolutely vividly brought to life through this performance from Orford Clark and the direction by Rose Glass. It's a, it was a real surprise. It was so good that I had to go and see it again at the second press screening last year. And, and I can't wait to see it again. And that's what convinced me. I, I missed the first press screening. I do think it's a remarkable film. So before we get on to the end of the show, you are now going to hear from Sarah Johnson, who was on our Birds of Prey episode, which I think, if memory serves, was 82. But let me just check that. Boom, 82. Yeah, so Sarah, she knows a lot about movies. She is a real authority on movies, but also she has a wonderful way of conveying her enthusiasm for movies. And you are about to hear that now. And she sent through something. I've heard it. It's a real treat. So yes, please enjoy Sarah talking about a lot of different things to do with movies. And then go and listen to episode 82, The Birds of Prey episode, because she is also first rate on that. I'm going to be recording uh, some blather for Rob for his 100th episode of the movie Robcast. So, I think my favourite movie memory is several movies and the common theme they have is my father. So the first film I ever saw at the pictures was the original Star Wars and I would have been about four and a half and my father took me because I'd been in hospital having tonsils and adenoids out and he promised me if I was a very good girl that I would go and see this amazing film that all of his friends had been talking about and he'd been waiting to see. And so, as was often the case, he took me, and he also took me as an excuse to go himself, but I will never forget sitting in the chair, the smell of the popcorn, the weird kind of coloured, what looks like water and oil, weird patterns on the screen before the infamous Pearl and Dean adverts as we had in those days. And the film itself, I can remember sitting and being riveted. My dad used to say often that he had never taken such a small child to the pictures to see a film and have them sit and not move. I was wrapped the entire way through and my life was forever changed. And it continued. My dad took me to see every Bond film. Uh, He took me to see Flash Gordon. His thing was to take the children to the pictures as a treat. Uh, culminating in us, all of us, going to see, at this point, four children, including a three-year-old, uh, <laughs> going to see uh, Return of the Jedi on a triple bill at our local uh, little Centre Halls cinema, which must have been lovely for my mum to have a day free of my father and of her four children. Uh, and we all thoroughly enjoyed it. So I think that's my... Seeing films with my father is a, a very fond memory, particularly Apollo 13, where he burst into tears at the end of the film when they were returned safely to Earth, uh, which I was totally shocked, having only seen my father cry, I think, two other times in my life before that. Uh, and it was because he so remembered the event itself uh, and it all brought it back. So, yeah, sorry, all my fond memories are, are of going to the pictures with my dad. Uh, a memorable cinema experience, I will say, is twofold. Uh, first and foremost, my favourite film of all time is Aliens, in part because of the circumstances of how I saw it. 
Uh, I went with my friend Darren, whose grandfather worked as a projectionist at the local cinema. I'm not going to name it in case even now there could have been trouble. But yes, we were underage and he snuck us in at the back to watch Aliens. And I don't think even now I have ever seen a film that had that reaction in the audience. It was an absolutely riveting tense roller coaster ride. I don't think I, I can't remember anything other than being so absorbed in the film as to felt like I was there. And the big, huge scene that everybody remembers uh, at the end where Ripley comes out in the power loader and says, get away from her, you bitch, was met with absolute thunderous applause, which in an English cinema in the late 80s was quite unheard of, but it has stayed with me forever. Uh, and it's one of the contributors to why it's, it's my favourite film. And there's a tie as well with having worked in a lot of cinemas. When the original Matrix film came out, I used to time myself on my screen checks so I could run into the screen and be in there as the opening sequence where Trinity uses bullet time for the first time appeared on the screen. For the first time, anyone had seen something like that. And to hear, to see that scene over and over on the big screen and hear the audience reaction, the vast intake of breath, never, ever got tired for me. And one of the great privileges of working in cinemas was to get to see the audience reaction. And I think that whatever happens with our post-pandemic world, the mass experiential event of cinema needs to continue because there is something about being together with everyone experiencing something um and there's no doubt that cinema and theater but cinema for me obviously more does that so i remember that my oddest experience goes back to when i was working in cinemas uh, and i'd been doing a bit of uh, being a training projectionist and it was the first film i'd ever done on my own uh it was the completely unsalubrious and pretty terrible schlocky b-movie species 2 a film that the company who made it had so little faith in that when they had printed it they'd save money only splashing for the expensive sort of polymer on the the leaders the, the sprocket holes at the end and very cheap celluloid on the print that we had in the middle which meant having changed the reels because that was what was going on at that point that shows you how old i am having changed the reels uh, i ran outside to go and change a light bulb uh, in one of the hallways of the cinema, because projectionists got to do all of that stuff. And some of the sprockets caught, the film stuck, set fire, burnt out through the middle, but also caused a further fire of celluloid that ran along towards the rest of the film, pulling in the huge arms of the leaders that you had to fit the film in before you roped it round onto the cake stand turner and in and out of the machine. Uh, and I came back from changing a light bulb to find a small fire in the very tiny and fire hazard <laughs> projection booth and the screen showing having burnt through flickering light and I managed to douse it and I realised that nobody in the audience cared a hoot about that when I looked through my little screen because it consisted of somebody who was asleep at the back and two people having sex down the front of the cinema. So that's definitely my weirdest experience and the fact I nearly burnt the screen down. And then the film that everyone should see is a difficult one because if we're talking about seeing it on the big screen, things have a power up big, you know, a large screen. For example, the original Alien film, I only ever saw pan, the panned and scanned ITV kind of versions for years. And then I remember being utterly astounded by its beauty on the big screen. So there is something about certain films demand to be seen on the big screen. And I would say that 2001 is one of those films. The original Star Wars, definitely. Obviously, Alien. And I would say as well, Night of the, I'm going to have to stand for Night of the Hunter, which is an incredible black and white film that not everybody has seen. But it does have a huge power 
when you see it on the big screen to kind of draw you into a fairy tale world. And it works so much more spectacularly when you see it large because you feel like you are on that river journey with the children, that you are there. So, yeah, um, I think that's the... I also would say, you know, all the others, the films everyone should see, everyone would have seen. We would have seen Star Wars. We would have seen Jaws. We would have seen Ghostbusters, surely. I mean, we would have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. You can never get away with Raiders of the Lost Ark. Still the perfect, finely tuned kind of blockbuster with a script you cannot insert a very fine wafer-thin millimetre into it. It's so perfectly rendered. It's an absolute machine. It's a thing of beauty. So, yes, I could rattle on forever, but hopefully this will do for the marvellous 100th episode of Robcast, which I hope goes on forever because it is my favourite film podcast. Oh, that was nice, wasn't it? Talking about seeing films with, you know, with like-minded people and feeling very lucky to be doing so. Uh, you know, I want to take a moment to just sort of say, acknowledge that this is the 100th episode that we've done. And I've been tremendously grateful and felt very privileged to be doing this with somebody who you know I consider a, a very dear friend. I hope that people listening have, have got have got something out of it at some point. Even if it turned out this was a zombie apocalypse and we were doing this on you know the last two men on a radio station doing this into the empty air, I'd keep on doing it. Well I'm not gonna be able to top that, so I'm just gonna say everything you said right back at you. Yeah, it is really nice. And I remember I think it was uh, December twenty fifteen when I said, in January, do you want to have a go at doing a podcast? And of course, it was called the Electric Shadows podcast for too many episodes <laughs> until I got my arse in gear and changed the name of it. And he said, yeah, yeah, that sounds all right. From that, we are now on 100 episodes. And it really is odd to think that that's been 100 episodes. And yeah, absolutely right back at you in terms of it's been fantastic talking about movies 100 times <laughs> with you and sometimes they were quite long discussions. Yeah, that four-hour Batman one with Ian was just one of the real highlights. That time that I locked you and Ian into a room, this was before the pandemic, to talk about the George Romero zombie films. That was eight hours I got you in that room to talk about zombie films. But they were four of the best episodes I think that we've done. Yeah, and I couldn't think of a more splendid person to do it with. I think that might be us done then for our hundredth episode. Yeah, I just want to say you know, <laughs> it's 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 lucky that we've never discussed film under any other circumstances because otherwise we might have run out of things to talk about. That'd be well. That's the oddest thing, isn't it? Because it's like we do talk about film a lot when we're not recording. It's almost like we have a real love for film that's never going to go away. And on that note, I think it's one of those things where it's like it's probably going to be two hundred episodes before we know it, which is. Not bad. That's a nice thought. It is. It's like, so that would be 2024 if we were to go at the same rate that we have produced these episodes at. Mm. Well, we should do probably do something for the 150th episode. Yes. Which would be nice as well. Well, as always, thank you for listening. And thank you very much for listening. And here's to another 100 episodes. Thank you.
万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万歳万